Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 235 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday afternoon, March 16th, 2023. It's spring break. It's South by Southwest. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, did you have Furman? In my bracket? Yes. I mean, I will say they appear in the bracket, the <laughs> part of it, but I did not pencil their name any myself as I filled in my bracket. There I, is a I'm sort of yeah. to ask how, how many times did you write in Furman? Uh, well, I actually didn't do a bracket this year. Um, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but if I did, I, I have to say that like, I wouldn't have done well, but I also would not have been high on Virginia. Like, I feel like this, one of the lessons of recent years is don't be too excited about Virginia. <laughs> I'm looking right now to see. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert. Um, oh, I, yeah. I, uh, Furman beat Virginia in case you haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> I'll just say I did have Virginia in the final four. So uh, <laughs> here, l- listen carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, you had, you had UVA in the final four? Well, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I had Texas winning it all. That might be that might be a record for for how quickly your bracket can be busted. The second game of the tournament, it was it was literally the first score I checked. I was like, oh wait, oh come on. Uh, uh, I, I actually watched the last two minutes. It was fun, unbelievable. Really, it was but, a great. You know, it was that's a, why this a, is really one of the greatest sports yep. occasions. There's a reason for March Madness. It was a great defensive play. It was a great. Uh, it was a. It was a great like 26 foot three pointer. It was. It was everything you like. So, oh, um, I, which is all better than, you know, the, the now torn patellar tendon of, of Edwin Diaz. Yeah, that is, uh, oh man, this has been a tough day for sports fans like us. Um, we'll come back to some of that in the frivolity. In the meantime, man, we've got a lot of, a lot of interesting things, a real potpourri of topics, wouldn't you say? A veritable potpourri, a, ver- a veritable cornucopia. <laughs> I'd say we even have a plethora. Of uh, indeed, a bevy. <laughs> Are uh, bevies ever not veritable? Mm, now, nah, nah, I'm just unsure. Uh, but I do know this. I know we're going to talk a little bit about some interesting developments relating to Russia, Ukraine at the ICC, that is the International Criminal Court. We're going to talk about uh, some drone strikes, including some uh, somewhat unusual <laughs> locations and perhaps some uh, unusual uh responsible parties. We're going to talk about uh, some drone, dr- drone strikes with, with Russian fighters. <laughs> yeah, we could, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't planned to mention that, but yeah, we've also got the, the downing of a drone, um, a, a drone struck, if you will. And a drone struck. Ooh, oh, that's, that could be a title. Drone struck. Right, drone struck. I like that. Thank you. I, I actually, I got a couple of good comments about the Linda Hamilton title from our <laughs> last episode. Yes. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, it's as much effort into the uh, show the as substance. the titles. Yeah. Indeed. All right. So we have uh, at least three drone things to talk about. We've got to, the to, we, seven... to, to, drone, to drone on about. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of droning on, um, all year long, we're going to be droning on about Section 702's renewal or lack thereof. And we're going to take note of the uh, the curious twist associated with Representative LaHood and, and uh, the possibility that he was the object of a query. We'll... we'll, we'll comment on that. Uh, we'll take note of the latest developments in the ongoing TikTok saga and the possibility of a CFIUS divestment order. Um, we've got a Gitmo transfer. We've got AUMF repeal activity. No, not that AUMF, the other AUMFs. <laughs> Even that's not specific enough. The Iraq AUMFs, both of them perhaps. We, we, we actually have like like current news about that, like a Senate vote from just a couple hours ago. All right. So where should we dive in first? What do you think? The Russia, Ukraine and the ICC? I guess. Yeah. Or should we let's do one of the short ones real quick. Why don't, why don't we we just talked about the AUMF. So let's let's do that first. Okay. All right. Um, so So Steve, how many how many AUMFs do we currently have going? How many authorizations for use of military force? So there are two that relate to Iraq, right? There's the 2002 Iraq AUMF, and there's the there's the good old 1991 Iraq AUMF, right? And those are both Persian still on the books. Gulf War. Yes. Um, so anyway, there were actually just this afternoon, um, the Senate successfully invoked cloture um, on a bill to repeal both the 91 and the 02 Iraq AUMFs. Um, 
60 votes were needed and they got to 68 with 19 Republicans um, joining 49 uh, Democrats. So I, I believe the that just that so that advances the bill to a final vote on the floor of the Senate, which I think is scheduled for next Tuesday afternoon, at which point it goes to the House where shrug emoji. <laughs> you know, I think five years ago, we just said like, well, Republican controlled House, no way there's going to be a repeal. These days, the politics of national security issues, uh, very hard to predict. I don't I don't know at all what the alignments might be in the House, but I think your shrug emoji is probably spot on. Uh, maybe. Um, so let's let's do some substantive discussion here. Um, what, if anything, is at stake in a world in which the those two AMFs exist versus one in which they don't? What what legal doors are unlocked? realistically that aren't otherwise uh, open. I mean, I think the question really is about like, to what extent we're still engaged in any kind of offensive operations um, in and around Iraq that are tied to the O2 Iraq AUMF. You know, we've talked at length about the extent to which operations against ISIS, um, you know, really, it, it was really hard to justify operations against ISIS under the O2 Iraq AUMF as opposed to the O1 al-Qaeda Taliban AUMF. Um, and so apparently the sort of lack of significant objections from the Biden administration suggests that maybe they are of the same view. Um, I, I'll say I find it hard to believe that this got through the Senate without at least some reassurance from the Biden administration that it doesn't need either the 91 or the 02 Iraq AUMF for any current or envisioned future operations. But that may just be a point to how malleable the 01 AUMF is. You know, the uh, it, yes, I, I think that's certainly right that anything we're actively doing involving the Islamic State is far more readily covered by the ON AMF on the on the flow down theory that Al Qaeda begets its franchises. The particular franchise that ultimately morphs into the Islamic State is a descendant of that. And if, if it's covered at all, it's most obviously covered by that. Um, the uh, anxieties associated with the continuing viability of both these Iraq AUMFs have uh, been associated in many people's minds with Iran, which is really interesting. So during the Trump administration, especially around the time of the Soleimani uh, strike that killed um, IRGC head General Soleimani, in uh, amidst lots of speculation about the possibility of a wider conflict or a wider use of force involving Iran, there was, I think, a lot of anxiety amongst those who were were reluctant to see something like that happening, that the Trump administration might claim to have extant statutory authority for using force against Iran under color of the Iraq authority. So the, the move would be this. Um, under the still pending existence of the two Iraq authorities, things that were impacting the stability of Iraq, especially militarily impacting the security of Iraq and U.S. forces in Iraq, um, even if coming from outside, perhaps especially if coming from outside, but even if coming from outside, um, might be subsumed under those Iraq-focused AUMFs. And so the idea was if Iran is meddling in Iraq, if Iran is acting through proxies and sometimes not even through proxies uh, to use kinetic force within Iraq, this would have a spillover effect or, or would unlock the door for taking kinetic actions against the Iranians, perhaps even outside of Iraq, as long as there was some sort of subject matter nexus coming back to Iraq. Um, and this was, I think, a pretty serious concern at that time. We haven't heard much about it for a couple of years because, of course, um, it doesn't seem like the Biden administration is particularly eager. There's, there's been no indications it's particularly eager to extend kinetic use of force against Iran. Um, but, you know, uh, there's an election coming up and who knows what the future holds. And so insofar as I guess what I'm saying is there's a sort of just good housekeeping argument for terminating decades old AMFs that are not obviously being used right now. Don't just leave these things on and lying around the house. Uh, but there's also a perspective uh, looking ahead as to what you might do with them in today's world that might be the sort of thing where you want a fresh uh, dose of congressional imprimatur if we were to do it. Um, again, that's that's assuming you're not talking about an actual legitimate Article II self-defense scenario, which, of course, if you are talking about that, you don't actually have to have an AUMF by definition. So anyways, uh, I, I guess it's uh, 
I think on the whole, a very good thing that the Senate's taking the action that it has just taken and would be a good thing if the House would complete the job, but who knows if they will. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I, I think that the, obviously I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I do think this was low, 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 low hanging fruit and, you know, might be a good time to remind everyone that we're coming up on 21 and a half years of the AUMF. Um, not that, not that you know, Congress ought to repeal the 2001 AUMF, but hey, guys, maybe, you know, think about whether you want to, I don't know, take a look at it. Think about, you know, what we're using it for today, if it's what we meant. Certainly, if Congress is, is interested in doing some, well, it's an interesting question, Steve. If, if Do you have a particular view at this point where we are today in 2023 on the 2001 Al-Qaeda slash Taliban AUMF? Um, what major change, short of repeal, but in the category of reform that you would most like to see there? Um, I would like Congress to make clear who the 2001 AUMF applies to. Because my, my concern is uh, is certainly more even a future president coming along and making arguments that people like you and me, Bobby, might find very, very, very implausible, but that aren't actually precluded by the text of the statute. So this is the kind of the under the heading of who are the associated forces these yes. days? Who, who yes. are the descendants? I mentioned a moment ago this idea of a flowdown from original core Al-Qaeda and, for that matter, original Afghan Taliban and the emergence either of splinter groups, franchises, and other direct descendants or affiliates thereof, and yep. also other groups, as happened often, especially in the Afghan theater, other groups that were taking up arms, like uh, uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar's group, um, HIG, like groups that were taking up arms in theater that were not the Afghan Taliban, were fighting alongside it. So you have this idea of various slowdown groups. There is this notion that at least... Uh, Within the Pentagon and CIA and White House circles, there's a known set of organizational in-scope entities that has changed over the years. Um, and there's been some public transparency, but often, uh, oftentimes it's unclear at any given moment over these two decades exactly who's in and who's out. Um, many of us have argued for a long time that that's not the right way to proceed, that it, at least at the organizational level, it should be made clear whom the executive branch, with, with a reasonable amount of, of leeway for exactly how much time has to pass after you make this determination, but they should be going public with who's in and who's out. Um, I think that we've had some public statements about it, but I don't know that we know at this moment uh, what the current understanding is. Uh, some of us, there, there was a wave of debate about this, uh, what, about a decade ago, Um you, Jen Daskal, myself, Matt Waxman, Ben Wittes, Jack Goldsmith, we were all, we had some exchanges of views about this. Um, and I think there was a ton of common ground there. Um, things like, by statute, requiring uh, some amount of public disclosure uh, periodically as to who the associated forces are. Um, statutory clarifications about the relevance of the law of armed conflict to these uses of force, which should have been common ground because everybody... Uh, both administrations for a long time have accepted that. Um, but the last serious push that had any serious White House involvement, I feel like, was early Obama administration around that time. Back then, it was all tangled up in the politics of ground forces in, uh, that were deployed in active theaters of combat operations. It's, it's interesting to imagine if, that's, if people cared to have that same debate today, uh, I don't know that we'd have much interest in the ground forces question, since right now we're not in that, those kinds of conflicts. But we're certainly still using force in various places. And this is a good time to note what we said earlier about some of those drone strikes. Um, so though we don't often do armed drone strikes in Yemen these days, it does still happen. And there was at least an unconfirmed report that um, a probable U.S. drone strike uh, killed a senior al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula figure in Yemen somewhat recently. Um, there's some organizations that try to track these strikes. And it, according to, I think it was uh, the Center for New American Security, one of those, um, had, a, had a listing that claimed there's probably been two or three, maybe as many as four or five strikes in Yemen in the Biden years so far, maybe two or three this year. And meanwhile, there was a UK drone strike in Syria back in December. Uh, Defense Secretary, uh, I mean, Secretary, 
was it Minister? Steve, clarify things for me in the UK. Minister of Defense? Is that the right verbiage? Ben Wallace. In the, yes, in the right. yes, the Defense Minister. Defense spelled with a C. Def- uh, ben Wallace de- told the de- de- Defense Minister. Yes. <laughs> he told the House of Commons on Monday that back in December, there was a Royal Air Force UAV that uh, used Talfire missiles to kill an Islamic State uh, senior target. Someone uh, linked to chemical and bio research. At least that's the way it was described to the commons. So um, there are both still non-U.S. uses of force. So it's not just the United States. And Yemen isn't entirely done either, it seems. And so that checks the box on this show's duty to periodically note where war on terrorism type stuff still continues to take place. And thus the continued relevance of the 2001 AUMF. All right. What else? Steve, what should we do um, Speaking of speaking of of hostility, should we talk about the the little bumpity bump? <laughs> the uh, the uh, the drone struck. The drone was, struck. Yeah, the drone struck was a U.S. Uh, I think it was an MQ nine Reaper. Uh, Steve, was this over the Black Sea? Oh gosh, I, I think so, but I don't I don't remember. I didn't look at where it happened. So so, but, but the the U.S. the U.S. has been very clear that it happened over international water. Yeah, so this was not in. It, I don't believe anyone's claiming it was an armed drone. This was an intelligence. This is a recon drone uh, engaged in uh, transit in international over international waters in international airspace, uh, and a manned Russian aircraft engaged in uh, <laughs> clearly an unsafe maneuver because intentionally or otherwise it uh, struck. I believe it struck the propeller of the MQ nine. And it had to be ditched into the ocean, um, and it's it's interesting for a couple of reasons. This is uh, under the general heading of close air encounters that take place uh, on the peripheries in in all sorts of sensitive locations. We can all remember early in the Bush administration when I think it was a, a P three Orion that was um, involved in an incident with a, a Chinese fighter aircraft that was that was dogging it, and then got too close and enforced uh, an accident forced a, an emergency landing on uh, Chinese territory. So stuff like this goes on very often. It leads to diplomatic complaints, but that's sort of the end of it because there's no actual physical contact. But the thing one is always afraid of is physical contact. Contact. This was an unmanned aircraft, obviously. If it had been a manned aircraft that that was forced to ditch, you know, one hopes the American pilot would have been able to eject. I do think when you know, when you're on one side of this and you know that the other side's aircraft is unmanned, it certainly creates a little more practical space to be aggressive with the closeness and proximity of your maneuvers, maybe even intentionally taking an extremely high risk move, such as initiating contact. Um, it, it is less provocative diplomatically and, and domestically, politically, when there's no person who's in harm's way, which is a big part of the story here. You could you could choose to escalate it if the United States wanted to. We don't seem to be escalating it beyond the, the relatively conventional diplomatic complaints. Oh, Steve, you've gone silent. I can see you're talking, but I don't hear you. Hear what you're this, is what happens, this is what happens when I meet myself. Um, uh, I should do that more often. Um, no, I, I've been, I, I think our reaction has been remarkably muted and, and stayed to this point. Um, and indeed, it's, it's interesting to wonder, I mean, leaving aside that the entire complexion would look different if this were still during the Trump administration, it's interesting to wonder how, you know, I, I, not Russia, but if some other country had had bumped into a, a reaper, um, whether we would have seen such a, a, a measured reaction from 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 the, the immediate prior president. Um, yeah, hard, hard to know, like if it was an Iranian situation, which in fact, look, these these kinds of close encounters take place constantly. And, and it's actually my, my loose impression is that this wouldn't actually be the only time that someone has, has intentionally or recklessly fouled a drone in a way that damaged it. The fact that there's not a person on board gives a lot more ability, uh, a little more practical ability to, to get away. With I was going to say it's, it's practical, not legal. Right. I mean, like presumably, uh, sure. yeah. Intention, yeah. you know, it, so this kind of comes back to the balloon discussion. Yeah. Um, which was totally different because transiting American airspace, you know, you, you were taking the risk that we may decide to take down the balloon you've released. <laughs> the balloon. The balloon. 
Maybe oh that's what's next. Maybe, uh, maybe we need balloons. Balloons over the Black Sea. I'm sure there are some. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, let's talk. So speaking of Russia and Ukraine, oh, on, yeah. on, on in, so, in some ways a more serious note, um, but in other ways a less practical one perhaps. Uh, we have some interesting developments out of the International Criminal Court. That with, old chestnut. The, the ICC. So the ICC, friends, for those, for the uninitiated, um, <laughs> it is a standing international body to enforce with prosecutorial and adjudicatory mechanisms uh, certain things, war crimes, um, genocide, and since 2018, in a complicated way, uh, the crime, the sort of mega war crime of aggression itself. And we'll have more to say about that in a moment. Um, there hasn't always been such a thing. We have had in the past, in the 20th century, the, the major international bodies for these types of uh, for, for war crimes, you've got the Nuremberg tribunals and other international military tribunals after World War II. Of course, you've got the, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda as well as 90s, 1990s examples. The idea of the ICC is rather than having to stand these up periodically in the aftermath of armed conflicts, can't there just be a standing body? Um, and so there is one now. Uh, the United States is not party to it. The Russians are not party to it. Ukraine actually is not party to it. But Ukraine, uh, many years back, after Russia's initial invasions and incursions, uh, did a thing you can do under the ICC, which is to uh, accede. Effect, yeah, you can accept the jurisdiction of the court on your territory uh, for for a particular purpose. And so anything happening within Ukraine's territory since then has been fair game for the ICC. Um but we'll have a little complication on that in a minute. So obviously the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, most recent round of it, is chock full of war crimes um, and aggression being the, the sort of the, the keystone piece. Let's talk about that first, Steve. When, when in 2018, the new ability of the ICC to investigate and prosecute aggression came into effect, that was the culmination of a fairly long negotiating process to add aggression. Uh, aggression being defined for for this purposes as uh, basically using uh, using force in international affairs in violation of the UN Charter to simply kind of sum it up that way. So there was a catch though, and the catch was that unlike the other offenses the ICC can adjudicate for aggression, you can't prosecute an individual for the war crime of aggression. Uh, unless they are a citizen of a state that is party to the treaty. So though the ICC has jurisdiction over recent events in Ukraine, it, it in, and that covers what we might call ordinary war crimes, it doesn't cover the overarching offense of initiating the illegal use of force. And so you'll see some coverage talking about how the ICC doesn't cover aggression. It does, but not in a way that lets them reach any Russian defendants. Um, so that's, I, I think, all there is to say about the aggression piece in the ICC for the moment. What's interesting is the question of, well, what about all the um, retail or even wholesale um, violations of the laws of war that, that the Russian military has engaged in, or I should say the Russian military as well as Wagner Group? And now ICC personnel seem to be uh, briefing reporters about the state of their investigations that... We've known for a while some investigations are underway, and these briefings uh, appear to indicate there will be two cases put forward. The way this works is the chief prosecutor, Kareem Khan, the chief prosecutor can uh, proffer charges, and there's a panel of ICC judges who sort of uh, vet this to see whether the evidence put forward or whether the claims put forward do in fact uh, satisfy the legal standards that the ICC is there to enforce. Um, and if so, they'll issue arrest warrants. Now here we must pause and acknowledge, barring a change, a significant regime change situation in Russia, in which uh, the Putin regime is thoroughly ousted and the new government is, is uh, apologetic for what has happened and is looking to make amends, it seems extremely unlikely that anyone they might 
indict uh, in the ICC would end up being, you know, obviously the Russians are not going to turn over personnel. So this will in effect be a, a chilling effect on those individuals. They will not be able to travel, et cetera, but there will be arrest warrants for them. The ICC won't try you in absentia, I believe. So we would not actually see proceedings. In any event, um, what are the two cases going to be? We're told in the reporting that one will focus on the really awful, uh, I, I would describe it as the, the basically the kidnapping of Ukrainian children and exporting them or taking them out of Ukraine and bringing them into Russia, where the, the Russian government's been basically, uh, for the younger ones, trying to get them adopted by Russian families uh, and others. There's all kinds of just crazy stuff that's happening. Um, there's a general and very clear rule against uh, a rule against expatriation of civilians in general and children in particular. It's really something. And we're talking about many thousands of Ukrainian children who have been basically taken from Russia, I mean, out of Ukraine and into Russia. So it looks like that could become the basis for war crimes charges against any number of Russians. And then the Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure are definitely going to come in for some sort of charge here as well. Now, this gets interesting because there are certain dimensions of civilian infrastructure in Ukraine that could be said to be dual use. They get into tricky questions about whether there was sufficient military advantage associated with, say, certain parts of the electrical grid and certain parts of the country where there's distinct military advantage to be had, or at least a plausible case for treating it as a military object, not just a civilian object. Um, but that's not true universally. And it seems pretty clear from what I have read that there are at least some substantial number of circumstances where Russian targets um, can only be described as civilian infrastructure in areas far removed from the fighting and offering far more uh, very little basis for arguing dual use. And so I think they're probably trying to zero in on what are the clearest, cleanest cut cases like that. Now, all this is pretty straightforward because um, I think the evidence that these things have happened is is pretty clear. But pinning it on particular Russian commanders and try, trying to get up the chain of command to more to greater levels of moral and political responsibility for this, that's kind of where the tricky part comes in. And you know what's interesting, Steve? You know, the the entities that might be best positioned to have the goods to actually prove who gave which orders, uh, that might often be American intelligence agencies. And that's where things start getting really interesting, both as a diplomatic matter and as a legal matter. Dun, dun, dun. I, I smell an NDAA reference coming. So it used to be for a long time. So America, as I said earlier, is not a member of the ICC, not a, not party to the Rome statute. It's worse um, than that. I mean, you got to talk about the American Service Members Protection Act. Yeah, no, like, so let's let's not put too fine a point on it. We are really hostile institutionally as a government to the ICC because of the level of activity of U.S. military around the world and the uh, longstanding fear that the ICC then will, will be coming after American forces, etc. There, there's a school of thought that says, gosh, this is all overblown. What, what America's position should be is we generally support the ICC. We also strongly support a rule that says when a country's own legal system rises above a certain threshold of being able to investigate its own activities and so forth, we ought to just that ought to be our position, and we ought to be complementarity. Complementarity, exactly, and that the ICC's role is to step in when there is such a gap. Um, suffice to say, that's not actually been our position. Though. Our position has been, hell no, we don't want to be party to this. And if any, Steve, how did, how did this statute uh, work exactly? The American Service Members Protection Act of 2002, uh, known in the human rights community as the Hague Invasion Act, um, <laughs> basically says that if the ICC uh, takes into physical custody any American service member, the president is authorized and perhaps even required to use military force to retrieve that service member, um, even if it means violating the territorial sovereignty of the Netherlands. There you go. So the other O2 AUMF. <laughs> the one um, that the, yeah. I mean, I mean the Hague Invasion Act. It's it's yeah. That's it's hard to beat. Uh, that's hard to beat. Yeah. Uh, so here's here's the catch. So there was also a clear statutory restraint on doing things to support. You, know, you couldn't send money. State Department yep. couldn't fund the ICC, and we couldn't cooperate with it. Well, last Formally. December, what's that? Formally, we could. Formally. There, right, right. There, no there, no there, formal. Yes, yeah. there's been a lot of there's been a lot of. The, the statutes have been read carefully. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so now 
there's a statute that's been on the books since uh, December that modified that constraint. So long and short of it is, it is permissible now to formally support the ICC with respect to investigations or prosecutions relating to the war in Ukraine. And that, that was done specifically so that should the ICC get involved in investigating war crimes that, that are happening over in Ukraine, the U.S., including the U.S. Intelligence Community, might be able to actually do something to help support it. Now, that removed, that pruned away the statutory prohibition, but that didn't mean that the political will was there to actually take the step that was thus opened up. And so back in, uh, I think it was around March 8th, Charlie Savage had a piece in the New York Times explaining that there's an internal administration debate that's basically teed up all the way to President Biden. And what's going on is the state and justice departments, possibly the intelligence community, we don't really know, but at least state and justice want to provide the ICC with intel. And in connecting these two stories, presumably at least some of the intel they want to provide would be, here's the recording or the documentation that this particular person is the one who gave the order or is in the chain of command that led to this war crime, that sort of thing. Um, they're for it, but the Defense Department is against it. And this was debated at a principals committee meeting of the NSC, that is uh, the, the top National Security Council uh, 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 cabinet secretaries debated this and um, have a disagreement because DOD does not concur in this. And DOD's position historically has been great reluctance to do anything that would open the door towards greater U.S. involvement in and thus legitimacy for the International Criminal Court because, you know, God forbid one day it might uh, point its apparatus uh, more effectively back towards us. Um, and uh, President Biden just hasn't decided this yet. That's what we're told. So I wonder, Steve, do you think that the, these briefings to reporters that led to this story is a way of sort of kind of trying to help encourage the White House to make this decision, perhaps? Yes. All right. <laughs> Simple as that. Yes. yes. All right. So again, it's all it's it's all symbolic, but I would argue that it's important symbolism. I think that whether uh, whether these charges whether are are brought is an important part of trying to create a clear record of war crimes that may never actually get prosecuted with someone in the dock, but nonetheless have been acknowledged as much as they can be. I think that sort of thing really matters because much of what Russia is doing is is a direct frontal assault on the idea that there really are constraints that mean anything in how war is pursued. I mean, I went to, you know, I went to law school thinking that I wanted to be a prosecutor for the ICC. So this is all, you know, not too late. <laughs> all right, is, it, is that your way of asking your dean for a leave of absence? So you can uh, not not granted. I need you in the curriculum. No, I think I'm good. OK, stay put then. Uh, Let's see. Is there anything else to say about this? Uh, I think that about covers that one. Do you want to swing down to Guantanamo and talk about what's happening there? Sure. If we must. We must. Uh, so um, Guantanamo, a couple things going on. Um, there was, Bobby, another, I think, fairly significant transfer of a detainee, right? Al Sharbi. Um, to uh, release to Saudi Arabia? I believe that's right. Um, yep. So... Um, and one of the things that's especially interesting about Al Sharbi is that he had taken flight school classes in Phoenix with two of the actual hijackers. I mean, there's there's a pretty good, so, you know, there's this great debate about who the 20th hijacker was supposed to be because three right. of the planes had five hijackers and one only had right. four, right? We know, there was a we know like, so Katani had tried, Katani was unable to enter the country. Right. And we know that uh, somebody was waiting outside to pick him up. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also, right, the U.S. claimed for a while that Zacharias Musali was going to be the 20, was the 20th hijacker. Um, not implausible that Al Sharbi was the 20th hijacker. Um, but anyway, so just to sort of put this all in context, um, he was, you know, transferred back to Saudi Arabia um, and, you know, without ever having put, been put into the military commission system, um, which reduces the detainee population down to 31. Um, got, let's see. So 17 that are still potentially like Al Sharbi going to be transferred or repatriated somewhere. And right. Then... So, so 17 who have been cleared by PRBs, right? So 17 who even under the Biden administration's own internal, whatever, right. Meet the, meet the criteria for security transfer if the conditions are appropriate. 
Yeah. And that's the fourth recent transfer um, yep, out of that category. Yep. yep. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got, we've got, you know, three people in sort of non-military commission, but also non-PRB cleared status. And then we've got the 11 people either in the military commissions or in Al-Balul's case serving a sentence. Um, speaking of Al-Balul, his case is actually, I, I don't know if you can believe this one, but his case is actually back in the DC circuit. Um, for I, I've lost track of which which version um, um, this is, but next Wednesday at 930, um, a panel of judges Katsis, Pan, and Centel is going to hear the latest rounds of challenges, both to the convening authorities appointment um, and to whether Al-Balul is entitled to have a, a new sentencing hearing before the military commission panel. It's also exhausting. It's so exhausting <laughs> to think that decades, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think that, you know, this just, it's just going to go on forever. I mean, you know, wait, are you, maybe these military commissions aren't such a good idea, Bobby? Is that is that where this is going? I mean, it's possible that on the show we have covered that particular topic before, so I don't mean to beat the dead horse. <laughs> but uh, it's almost like our, our latest sustaining member is simply just to comment on the preposterousness of how drawn out this process is. I mean, we're getting to a point where it's like, you know, I mean... We're going to have judges on the D.C. Circuit who weren't born on 9-11 who are still hearing appeals in the Al-Balul case. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere out there is that person or persons. Um, well, speaking of things that just keep coming back, um, thanks to the sunset process, Section 702 every few years is back before us. Section 702, uh, long-time listeners know, is the, uh, the statutory shorthand for a particular form of foreign intelligence surveillance authority that I'm gonna, I'm gonna be real, paint with a real broad brush here. The basic idea is this, um, with 702, the target of the collection must be a non-US person who's not within the United States, which may, may leave you wondering, well, wait a minute, why do we have special statutory authority for that? Normally that's all just sort of, that's just spycraft outside the- 12333. Yeah, and, and the answer is because, uh, yeah, that's true in general. But here's the thing, in the modern world of uh, digital communication technologies, there are any number of ways in which these non-US persons outside the United States are making use of the technologies of America-based companies. So for example, having a Gmail account, in which case it sure is nice and convenient that the parent company is right here within US jurisdiction. And there are ways in which it would be convenient from the intelligence collection point of view to be able to go to them and mandate uh, with force of force of law, uh, corporate cooperation in collecting on that otherwise fully foreign target. That that's the the basic idea of seven hundred two. Um, and one of the things that has happened in more recent years, there's been all sorts of controversies over time about the shapes and boundaries of this authority. But these days, I'd, I'd say the most uh, engaging part of the debate has to do with what happens. After the authority has been used, in any given uh, year, there's the fruits of 702 collection. There's a database, if you will, that's got all the resulting collection on these foreign targets. And there's sort of a stage two question. Who should be allowed to run queries of the database uh, within the U.S. government? You know, is it just the NSA? Is it, is it just the foreign intelligence-focused agencies? Um is it, is it also FBI in its uh, counterintelligence capacity? Is it FBI in its regular law enforcement capacity? And for that matter, uh, if, if it extends into the criminal law enforcement investigative realm, this phase two, can I query the database uh, area, what should the boundaries of that authority be? And what happens if there's some amount of, of violation of those boundaries over time? And so those are the kinds of things Section 702's uh, debates have focused on in recent years. And then there's been a, uh, and there've been lots of violations. Let's just say that there have been <laughs> lots of documented instances where uh, by mistake, or perhaps in some instances, in a handful of instances on purpose, and investigators queried the database when they should not have. Um, so from the, from the DOJ perspective, and there's, there's a really good recent uh, Lawfare podcast episode with Matt Olson, you know, laying this, laying out the case for this, from the DOJ perspective, look, we're aware of the mistakes. We're constantly improving the process. And a lot of the mistakes that are being talked about now 
predate the most recent round of changes. One of the most important of which, and it kind of stuns me that this wasn't the deal to begin with, um, for those who, who in theory could have access to querying the database from the FBI side, changing the defaults. So right. the default is not that you automatically include the 702 database when, when running queries of government held information, but rather you have to opt in and document why you're opting in. Um, like, yes, obviously, please do that. And so they are now doing that. Um, there is this sort of larger set of questions, though, about um, what about particularly sensitive inquiries? Like, let's say you're going to run the name of a U.S. person who's involved in politics, maybe even an elected official. And by the way, why would that ever happen? Our minds tend to go to two places. One, ah, abuse. Or two, ah, that person maybe is uh, actually doing something wrong and we're, we're investigating them. Um, remember the third category. This is really important. Maybe there's reason to think somebody's targeting them, that they're in danger, that they're the object of a hack or a recruitment or an attack. So there's also protective rationales as well here. And that that doesn't get talked about enough. In any event, um, we're in the run up to the to the current sunset on Section 702 authority on December 31st of this year. It'll expire, uh, which would be, I think, a, a terrible thing from a foreign intelligence collection perspective. Um in general. And so one hopes, I hope it'll get renewed, albeit with some further tweaks to, to further refine and improve the safeguards. But the politics have gotten really tangled because all politics touching on what, uh, what some might characterize as the deep state or on national security agencies uh, of all sorts uh, have become complicated on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the Republicans certainly cannot be counted on across the board to think that these authorities are a good idea. Some of the most fierce critics are now found on the Republican side making common cause with the uh, uh, the formerly most fierce critics found on the left. And, and then into this mix comes a story a couple of weeks ago uh, where Representative LaHood uh, went public saying that he believed from things he's seen that his name was used in an FBI query. Now, LaHood, let's be really clear, strongly supports renewal of 702, but in part, as he says, because he, he believes his name was used as a query, um, he's also particularly sensitive to these concerns about making sure that we control access to the database appropriately. So that's a pretty wild wrinkle. Um, I don't think it's clear at all, Steve, maybe you know better. I don't think it's clear at all what context for querying his, let's assume it's true, he, his name was queried. It doesn't seem like anyone's really loudly disputing that, it's right? Though why it could have been a protective reason. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like in the abstract, you just don't know what that means and why, right? It's just uh, too much, too much to know. Yeah. So you know, our our colleague at UT, Adam Klein, has just written a series of pieces. One in National Review, uh, I think yesterday, talking about this and saying, look, what we should take from this is not to th don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, deal with the dirty bathwater in part by uh, building in clear statutory constraints that more strongly reinforce the ostensible agency internal constraints on what are the rules when you were going to query uh, an American at all, but especially an elected official. Like what kind of note, maybe there should be notification to Congress. Maybe there should be uh, a, a written approval from the FBI director or maybe the attorney general or deputy attorney general. These sorts of things and others that Adam's, Adam mentions, I think that's the path forward, is that there need to be a sensible set of reforms that are not going to gut the authority, um, but that actually make sense, that are focused on the the problem, if it is a problem, um, that actually relates to 702, which is non-foreign intelligence queries of the database that results from it. Anyways, that, that's my take on that. Oh, you're muted again. I know. I got to stop doing that. So um, I think, let me put it this way. I think that 702 is an important authority. I think it serves a lot of really good benefits and purposes. I think there's still a lot we don't fully know or that is not fully well understood about the querying abuses and about the sort of, you know, I guess I'm, I, let me, I find I watched a lot of the Brookings event and I thought Matt sort of dodged some of the stickier um, wickets when it comes to 702. You know, I think Liza Goitin from the Brennan Center has been writing a lot about some of the really, you know, sticky problems with 702 that I don't think the government's fully accounted for. Um, 
that said, I mean, I think the, the larger problem, Bobby, is that there's a lot of nuance here, and I'm not highly confident in the current Congress's ability to do nuance. I'm, I'm highly confident in your accuracy in saying that there's no reason to be highly confident there will be nuance. In fact, that's that's a, the great dilemma here, right? I think a lot of the discourse sort of out there in the public discourse on this is all about things that aren't even about 702. They're about what we call, you know, traditional FISA. Right. Title I mean, one. Yeah. Just let's be, let's be really clear. Like there's a whole set of questions about under what circumstances can you actually try to surveil all the electronic communications of an American citizen? That's not what this is about at all. The only act of surveillance in this case is about the communications of non-U.S. persons outside the United States. Is There is the back-end question of once you've collected that stuff, can you, can you at phase two run a query of the database to see whether a U.S. person's name shows up in there? And if so, what can you do with that information? Yeah. Um, there are really good and important discussions to be had about that back-end querying question. But the idea that we might just get rid of the ability to, to mandate uh, domestic company cooperation with these extremely serious counterterrorism, counter, uh, you know, um, China focused, Russia focused, cybersecurity focused, um, one of the most valuable tools in our arsenals. The, when the idea that we might go dark on that is, is really kind of bonkers. Yep. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of China and <laughs> of information technology, we should note the latest TikTok development because there may be some active users of TikTok in our audience. Steve, uh, average age of our audience, where would you peg it? 46. <laughs> you know, if we, we'll have to find out sometime. One, one day we'll have to see if advertisers do want to advertise on our show. And then we can look <laughs> at like which kind of companies, you know, is it like the Franklin Mint has coins for you to invest in? That'll tell us the average age. Seriously, um, it, it who is was who was who was crazy Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so TikTok, as, as longtime listeners will know, has been in all sorts of legal trouble in the United States and political trouble in the United States. And young folks the world over are worried, worried what is going to happen to their ability to continue to access it, and they, they're right to be worried because it turns out it wasn't just a Trump administration phenomenon. Uh, there were two things that were put in motion under Trump. One was an attempt to use the tools of IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, uh, to to use sanctions authority uh, to effectively force divestment of both WeChat and TikTok. Uh, but at the same time, you had a CFIUS, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS review of retrospective review or retroactive review of the original transaction in which um, WeChat uh, became operative. I'm sorry, not WeChat, when uh, TikTok became operative TikTok. in the United States. Uh, and, and the root of all this is in the ownership by a Chinese company, ByteDance, of TikTok. Now, to be really clear, the way it is today, as I understand it, something like 20% of the of the equity in TikTok is still held by ByteDance, the Chinese company. I don't know the corresponding percentage of the voting rights, though, and I do. I'm reasonably sure that the voting right percentage is much higher than 20%. Uh, so you'll see a lot of coverage that says, "Well, you know, 20% of uh, or yeah, 20% of the equity is owned by ByteDance, 20% by employees, and 60% by a bunch of others, including American uh, investors like uh, BlackRock and Sequoia. That's all great, but the voting rights, I think, are distributed a little bit differently. And in any event, the data and the access, the, the algorithm, the proprietary recommendations algorithm uh, in Chinese hands, indeed, China has enacted in, in the face of this American pressure, an export rule that the algorithm cannot leave Chinese control. So whatever else happens with possible divestment, uh, ByteDance itself is, an, is, is in a real problematic position because they actually can't, under Chinese law, uh, sell off the algorithm. So uh, what, what TikTok's been trying to do under the Biden administration is they haven't had to worry about the IEPA sanctions, but they do still have to worry about the CFIUS review. And there's been this dance going back and forth. TikTok's put forward something they call Project Texas. And the Texas link has to do with Oracle being here in Austin and Oracle, an American company, uh, being positioned under this 
proposed um, billion and a half dollar investment for Oracle to kind of manage the data flows so that the U.S. government wouldn't have to be so worried about Americans' privacy, their data, uh, making its way back to China. Um, it looks like CFIUS is unpersuaded by Project Texas, and the reporting over the past few days has uh, has it that CFIUS has directed that there's sort of a, you're, you're going to have to sell, you're going to have to divest. And it's not real clear with the algorithm constraint, how exactly ByteDance is going to be able to respond to that. And meanwhile, Congress uh, looks like there's bipartisan support for, I forget what the acronym stands for, but the acronym is the Restrict Act. It's, it's uh, restricting the emergence of security threats that risk information and communications technology. Ah. <laughs> Ouch. But, you know, that's... Can't uh, we, can we name our laws the British way? The uh, Information Communications Technology Act of 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Or the TikTok Act. Well, you can imagine how many bad acronyms were were on the table before they chose that one. So I guess it could have been worse. I'm sure there were many TikTok acronyms floating mm-hmm. around. Uh, this, all, this all brings me back to the line in the Dar Williams song um, about how students against the treacherous use of fur doesn't make a good acronym. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so the Restrict Act looks like it has a real good chance of becoming law. And, and I think it's fair to sum it up as... It's an iteration of IEPA. This wouldn't be the first time. There's there's plenty of times Congress has delegated its foreign commerce authority relating to what amount to embargoes or economic sanctions uh, in particularized ways. We ha- we, it's not all IEPA, the general authority. You get particularized versions. This would be an example of a particularized uh, iteration of IEPA that would relate to certain countries that are of special concern, certainly including China, in connection with... Uh, ownership stakes or, or actual ownership of information technology used in the United States. And I think, the, Steve, tell me if this sounds right to you. I think the, the bottom line that really matters is with IEPA authority, as we talked about on this show during the Trump administration period with TikTok, there is a language in IEPA that makes it unclear just exactly where and how you could use that generic authority when it's information communications technology and we talked a little bit about how it's a little unclear how that really ought to be read, but it's at least a threat that was enough at the district court level to cause the Trump IEPA sanctions to run into legal challenges. There was at least one court that thought that the statute was best read as not being applicable for for a situation where Americans were accessing information from abroad. Um, the Restrict Act will basically recreate some of this authority without that particular constraint is how I understand it. That's the bottom line. And yeah, yes, there will still be some First Amendment challenges. And it seems like it's de rigueur that every media account of the Restrict Act says, well, there could be a big First Amendment problem. Uh, I think that it would survive that sort of challenge. But we'll see. And it looks like there's a bit of a uh, game of chicken going on with ByteDance and TikTok. My prediction is they will not strike a deal that China itself, will, that Beijing will make sure that it's... Uh, basically incompatible demands between the two national capitals and TikTok's going to get caught in the middle. And I do not know whether people will still be watching it from within the United States a year from now. Um, that's, that's a bold, a bold, maybe bold, maybe that's what this show's all about. Bold, maybe um, <laughs> if, if we didn't already have an episode title, bold, maybe would be a good one, but, but, but here's but the drone, thing, like, drone struck is too good. Drone struck. Um, the uh, real interesting question to me is, okay, but whether, WeChat and other technologies. I mean, yep. TikTok, of yep. course, is of massive interest to its users, um, but I don't know that it's the most strategically significant of the technologies that we're talking about here. So, watch out for future WeChat action. I mean, just the whole universe. I mean, for us, and this is especially like for you know for students who are thinking about like, hey, what should I maybe think about doing in law school, right? I mean, the you know the universe of sort of technology and the intersection between like cross-border transactions and cross-border technological exchange is there's a that's just that is a very very interesting important um proliferating universe of stuff absolutely this stuff's not going away which is good for us since we have put down some pretty big bets in these areas you and i in our school indeed well you you more than me my friend (laughs) and i noticed i became dean just in time to not actually be as involved i just work here me too. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So frivolity time. 
the Mets, Mets, not, the Mets, bad, bad, just bad. We managed to have bad Mets news even in the the off season. In the World Baseball Classic, there's bad Mets news. I know. Wait, did you hear that the the British team got booed in Phoenix? Really? Yeah, like the, the Great Great Britain's team. Uh, like and, and, there was and, and, and enmity over the War of eighteen twelve. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. Like, what was the precipitating thing? I I don't know. Was it was it like a Prince Harry deal? I don't know. Some sort of like some sort of anti, you know. Charles the third. By the way, do do you have a are, are you do you have a position on Harry and Meghan and that whole that whole contract? My, my position is I would like to hear less about it and them. <laughs> I'd like them to be somehow no longer as visible in the news sources I consume. <laughs> All of them. Fair and I say that as someone you know, I've watched The Crowns, great fun, um, but I just please no more, please no more. Like going on Twitter some days is like being forced to stand in line at the grocery store and you just can't help but see the tabloids all around you. Like, I don't care which of those people are mad at each other. No mas. Now, having said that, I'm curious, what is, do you have a dog in this fight? I'm, I'm, I'm fairly like I'm, I'm in this, I'm a weird pro monarchy, but anti most of the current Royal family um, situation. Kind of, kind of like my view of the Supreme Court. Um, I was gonna say, like, I feel like you, your your kind of calling card is interest in institutions, even if uh, you don't agree with the people and personnel and policies currently within them. It's almost like one can distinguish these things. Say what? Um, Teaching moment? What? uh, Who? What? Um, But but man, I mean, I so I I don't think Harry and Meghan are are. Free of any uh, 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 personal responsibility in the situation, but holy Toledo, do do does the way they've been treated um, raise hackles? One might say, I uh, um, I'm blissfully ignorant of the particulars of the royal family family well, shenanigans. I just know, that, I just know there's lots of books, TV shows, and other things, and the whole thing kind of smacks of a lot of publicists getting together. Saying, you, know, you know what we could we could make a lot of money for a lot of people and generate a lot of interest and clicks. Um, have I, by the way, have I, have I pitched you now? Have I pitched you yet on my next book idea? Uh, please tell me you're going to tie it into the royal family somehow. I'm not the shadow family. The shadow. Uh, no. Well, I mean, the, hey, the Brits have the shadow government. Uh, right. The, the shadow. The shadow. The shadow chancellor. The shadow. You know, home secretary. You could be the shadow prince of Wales, Steve. Can I also, by the way, can I just point out just just while we're here, because because somehow we ended up down this rabbit hole. No one thinks the term shadow in that context is pejorative. So you're going to have to clue me in. I take it there are contexts in which you are, you, are you saying like the people who don't like your criticisms of uh, uh, sort of uh, ru- 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 think- routinely criticize the term as being sinister. And, and I guess I, I just think that like there are lots of contexts where the term is used in a completely non pejorative sense. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Like I, I get it that I get it that when when the phrase shadow docket is prominently associated with criticism, there's a tendency to assume that it's meant to imply things taking place out of sight and so forth. <laughs> um, but it's definitely not a necessary connotation. And I think yep. your example is a good one. Um, anyway, sorry, just random aside. Well, actually, so you reminded me a book recommendation. Um, this is a random one. Uh, I thought this is really good. So this is a book recommendation for those who are interested in, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of we've talked some on the show about various uh, sort of Game of Thrones type book series that we've liked. And um, if you like historical fiction, you're interested in the Hundred Years War. I thought of this, Steve, because we were thinking about the Prince of Wales. Uh, if you're interested in the Hundred Years' War and you want a read that is historically well-informed, indeed written by a genuine expert, um, but that is kind of written in a, I wouldn't say like full-on HBO level a Game of Thrones style, but has a little bit of what some call the the hard fantasy, sort of the grit of battle and sort of the the up-close view. And, and kind of reads as if it's it's a fiction. Um, Essex Dogs by Dan Jones. And so um, this is a pretty quick read. It's the first in a planned uh, three-part series. Dan Jones, pretty well-known professor um, who's written a lot of 
straightforward history about that period, you know, things like a book on Magna Carta, book on the Plantagenets. Um, and he's been on a lot of podcasts recently. My wife actually mentioned to me that he mentioned he had actually written historical fiction that sort of starts off uh, with an invasion, with the invasion and kind of carries forth from there following a set of characters. So I listened to it on Audible. I thought it was great. It was really cool. good. It definitely was not a dry, you know, it's not a lot of, yeah. uh, it's not the big historical picture. It's yeah. what does it look like from the point of view of a, a couple of scruffy guys that are in the invading force and they're trying to survive and make their way as the invasion progresses. Would you call them the Plantagenets or the Plantagenets? I have no idea. Ah, I'm, sure it's, okay. I'm sure it's whatever one I didn't say. No, no, I'm just, I'm, 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 I, as a purely I mean, amateur. Plantagenets more, but I don't know if that's basically. Eh, you know. Plant, planted, or, or Edmund Genet, Plantagenet. Plantagenet. Exactly. <laughs> Let's have an XYZ affair while we're at it. Um, um, so I, well, I was, I was, anyway, so, so my, my, my 10 second pitch for my next book, All the right. election of 1864, the war, the, the election that saved America. Oh, that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah, I was just um, in DC with the family for spring break and, uh, we were at the national portrait gallery, saw some George Meade stuff there. Well, so I mean, 18, like, I feel like of all of like, there are elections that have like this literature around them, right? Like 1876 has a literature, um, 19, I don't know, uh, 48 has a literature, right? 68 has a literature. 1865 certainly does. Uh, what's that? 1865 certainly does. There was an election? Huh? No, no, no. Oh, you're saying election specific. I thought you just meant years yeah. would have. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. but so, right. And so like, and, and, and what, what strikes me is like, I mean, so in the end, the election of 1864 was not that close. Like Lincoln ends up winning in a landslide. But as late as August 23rd, he was convinced he was going to lose. Um, he has the cabinet sign a memorandum committing to basically doing whatever it could to save the union between the election and the inauguration of Lincoln's successor because, quote, it will be quite impossible to save it thereafter. Um, he plots with Frederick Douglass about how to free as many slaves as possible before March 4th, 1865, if McClellan is going to be sworn in then. I mean, it's like um, Nevada gets rushed into statehood. Um <laughs> Right. We have the, the National Union Party. I mean, we have, you know, letting soldiers vote. No one seriously talks about postponing the election, even though it's in the middle of the Civil War. I, just, I feel like there's yeah. a lot of really deep, interesting stuff there. So so obviously there will be some extant literature about this. Have you done has, has no one really done a sort of so, narratively compelling deep dive through the major characters? I have on my desk. Um the, 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 the sort of the nine books that I've been able to find um, that have been written in some way adjacent to the election of 1864. Um, That's super interesting. And, and, you know, they exist, but they're not one, they're most of them are old. And yeah. two, like, I don't, I, I think they miss uh, some decent parts of the story. Um, you know, as your dean, I strongly recommend this project. I think it sounds really compelling. Woo! Dean Seal, official. Dean Seale, the, this is what this is why I asked you. This is why I asked you while we're podcasting because, like, I put you on the spot. Hey, Bobby, yes, can I right. dot dot dot? <laughs> Everyone's like, "Wait, do they all have to ask him for permission to the projects?" No, they don't care at all. But I still give you the dean seal of approval. Yeah, um, you know, I I sort of feel similar, somewhat similarly, although it's much more nerdy and doesn't present as great a story. Um, the use of prisoner of state detention during mm -hmm. the early years of the Civil War. So, mm -hmm. uh, as you know. On the back burner for me is always my my military detention history book, and uh, th there is material in this that talks about, you know, you, pe people know about maybe ex parte Merriman, they know about ex parte Milligan, you know, people know a few of these iconic cases, uh, um, but the large number of basically domestic national security detentions overseen by the State Department yep. uh, during the early war years, and really up until like towards the end, um, so many great stories, very little historical record unpacking most of it. So I have, a, I have a little bit of that material in, in that book, which, you know, now that I'm Dean, Steve, actually, I think I'm going to make more progress on that book. We'll see. I think that's great. I, and I just, you know, I, I wrote about the prize cases for my SCOTUS Substack a couple yeah. weeks ago. And I, and I got a lot of, like, I think a lot of people that, that piece generated a lot of positive feedback from folks who didn't really know the story of the blockade mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court's role in it. 
and the fight over the dual theory of the war. So I, I think there's a continuing, you know, sort of interest in this. I agree. And, you know, you saw this a little bit when Rehnquist did uh, All the Laws But One, which is a really interesting book. Um, yep. And, you know, I'm not sure I agree with every bit of how he characterized the various episodes he went through. But, man, it's a really it's a it's a great book. I mean, I definitely recommend people check it out. Um, I think you and I have talked about how fun it would be to do a uh, a year long sequence. It'd have to be two semesters of uh, pre, during and after Civil War legal issues. Um, Sandy Levinson's done that for us a few times, at least uh, I think he has Civil War course. Mm-hmm. All right. At this point, there's only one thing left to do, and it's to talk about uh, your bracket, your final four. We've already noted mine is shot because I had UVA in it. <laughs> that obviously was not meant to be. Whoopsies. Um, so I was going to say, I, I'm doing this live. I have not actually um, um, worked all, my, all the way through a bracket. So I'm going to go very quickly through each region and tell you tell you my thoughts. So let's start with the South region. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going... Way out, well, so, ah, uh, yes, Virginia is gone. Um, I'm going to go way out on the limb here, and I am going to say, I think, Baylor. Yeah, that's who I had going to the South Final against Georgia. I mean, against Virginia, so. Mm-hmm. I could Just, I mean, Alabama has so much baggage surrounding it. Arizona's only up by one on Princeton as we speak. Um, like, I just, I, I'm going with Baylor in the, in the South. All right, good call. Um, Midwest, man, I mean, if it happens, that Houston versus Texas regional final is going to be, uh, quite the barn burner. Um, oh yeah. I'll pick Texas out of loyalty, but I'm, I'm, I'm not confident in that pick. Um, but I will pick them. I've got Indiana knocking off Houston. I just, I, Houston looks amazing, but the level of competition just, I don't think there's battle tested. Mm. Um, so we'll see there. I do think te- Texas is obviously a trendy pick. Lots of people are excited about Texas because we we've, you know, that was quite a run in the Big Twelve tournament. And yep. and the coach Rodney Terry story is yep. so cool, so good, yep. so good. All right, so I've got I've got Texas, I've got Baylor. Uh oh, that's a bad start. <laughs> that, that, I guess that means I can't pick Kansas because that would be three ah, Big Twelve no. teams. Go for it. Um, no, I think UCLA is really good. I, I will go. I will. I will take. I will take. No, well, UCLA or Gonzaga. I will take UCLA coming out of the West. Okay. Um, and then, gosh, I I I hate this pick because it's such a ugly sort of historical chalky pick. I think Duke comes out of the East. <laughs> I have I have Tennessee stopping Duke. Okay. Coming out of the East, I have UConn coming out of the West. UConn, interesting. Yeah. But I also have, so I have UConn knocking off Kansas and then having to get past TCU. So I look. Well, of at course this, you do, Homer. I have one, two, three, four Big Twelve. Wait, 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 wait! You have TCU beating Gonzaga. Oh yeah. Oh that. I did. <laughs> oh, you I'm calling that right now for sure. <laughs> it shouldn't engender that much laughter. Oh man. <laughs> All right. I think before before we embarrass ourselves any further, impossible. Um, that's true. Um, I guess we'll we'll uh, uh, we probably won't record Tuesday since that's like four days from now. But um, I, we are well on our way to you winning the bet. So I think you should be happy with that. Um, what what was what is the benchmark we had to get to? I can't even remember. I think it wasn't it thirty episodes. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we're on the way. This is yeah, we're 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 doing well. Um, no, maybe it was twenty episodes. I don't know. Well, we will yeah, we will figure it out. Yeah, thirty seems high to me. Twenty, yeah. maybe. Anyway, whatever it was, I'm I'm in deep trouble. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast, and all I can say is that baseball season is over before it started, and that makes me both sad and also very productive because I'll have lots more time to work. <laughs> so, on that note, everybody, stay safe out there. Adios.